Welcome to the Building the Elite Podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. 18 Delta, the qualification course for Special Forces medics, and SOCOM, the Special Operations Combat Medic course, are among the most difficult schools in the U.S. Special Operations Pipeline. The people who attend these courses are special operators who have already been through their selection programs and, in some cases, have already gone through several workups and deployments with their units. They're smart, motivated, and highly capable people. And yet, only about half of them will make it through a given course. It's just that hard. Today, we're talking with two different graduates of this course, a former Green Beret and 18 Delta medic named Jack, and a former Navy SWIC and SOCA medic named Chase. After leaving the Navy, Chase got his PhD in geophysics from UC Berkeley, and he's now a senior analyst at the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins. He's a literal rocket scientist. Jack, we're not sure what Jack does. We're going to discuss what this school is like, what to expect if you're a student on your way there, and some of the best practices for successfully completing the course. We'll get started with a question for Jack. So what is 18 Delta and SOCOM? In my head, it was always that SOCOM was like the first half of 18 Delta, and then the Deltas went through and did more stuff. Is that accurate? Yes, Greg, that's accurate. So the difference basically between a SOCOM credential medic and an 18 Delta is an 18 Delta is SOCOM qualified. So SOCOM stands for Special Operations Command Medic Scores, right? And that is like the first nine-month block. Full disclosure, I've been out for a better part of a decade now, so it's a little bit different now. But when I went through the first block that you went through, if your training MOS was 18 Delta, you would have to go to SOCOM. And that's basically like an eight to nine-month period of instruction where you learn the fundamentals and basics of what it is to be a Special Operations Command Medic. That is the absolute baseline that all Special Operations Command Medics have is that schoolhouse. So you have like your Ranger Medics, your SARCs with MARSOC and Recon Battalion, and then your PSYOPs, your 160 SOAR, 68 Whiskey 1 is pretty much the Army MOS you get coming out of SOCOM. SOCOM basically starts off at an EMT block and then progresses from a crawl, walk, run phase to the point where, you know, about a third of the way and you're drinking from a fire hose every single day. I think nowadays there are awarding an associate's degree coming out of it. There are a lot of transferable accredited courses in terms of anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, the trauma modules, the pre-hospital care, your EMT credential gets established in the first month, and then now you also come out as a nationally registered paramedic. So the difference between a SOCOM medic and an 18 Delta or our Navy equivalent, or SOIDC, Special Operations Independent Duty Corpsman, I remember seeing this on a slideshow when I was in SFMS, so it is a little bit dated, and you should fact-check me on this, but from what I understand doctrinally, the difference between a SOCOM and an ATD slash SOIDC is that SOCOMs can, by doctrine, sit on a patient for 72 hours with adequate supplies. Uh, an 18 Delta or SOIDC, by doctrine, should be able to sit on a patient indefinitely with adequate supplies. Now, if you were to ask me the validity of that, I'd probably have some choice words because I'd be very uncomfortable having to sit on a patient for the term indefinite. But there is a difference in the scope of practice, and I'm saying this from a point of humility. I've known some SOCOMs 
especially like some of the ranger medics that would run circles around some AT deltas in terms of combat trauma and trauma medicine. Seen it at the refresher course. It definitely comes down to the person and, and difference as well. But the scope of practice and the roles and responsibilities for an AT delta, I think I can say without recourse, are massively expanded upon, especially within the second part of the course, which is uh, SFMS course. You're basically going to be have these expended capabilities in terms of laboratory and diagnostic materials and work basic extremity surgeries, amputations, wound debridements, and emphasis on prolonged field care. Prolonged field care is touched upon in the Sockham pipeline, and I think they're actually starting to be a little bit more in-depth in it now than when I went through. However, like the PFC portion and extended patient care, and then also additional clinical hours going off in other civilian hospitals for extended hospital and trauma rotations, that's also included on that secondary portion. Basically, if you think of the Sockham as like the quintessential combat medic, like the best in the military, these dudes are like paramedics on steroids, right? Everything is bread and butter, TCCC, and it's some TFC and whatnot, like that is their role and responsibility. 18 Deltas encompass that, plus now you have other facets, so like veterinary medicine, so not just like canine, multipurpose canine care, but like actual like equestrian medicine, large herd medicine, gerontology and pediatrics, dealing with children, aging populations, a massive expansion upon dental care in terms of like field extractions and rudimentary restorations and whatnot. And then also, like I said before, like laboratory work, being able to utilize a microscope and determine what is going on with someone, whether it's through thick and thin blood smears or OMP of, you know, stool samples and whatnot. So that's pretty much the difference in a nutshell. And then the extra course, the SFMS courses, I think 16 weeks now, four months extra. But the difference also that I see is once you get to your team or whatever, what an AT Delta does is vastly different than what a Whiskey One does in PSYOPs or Civil Affairs Medical Sergeant does on a Civil Affairs team or a Ranger Medic. AT Delta is kind of like, there's two types that I've dealt with. There's ones that are like extremely overconfident and there's ones that are just self-depreciating. So you have two ends of the spectrum, one that thinks he's a doctor and the other one that's like, hey, I'm just like a Bravo, but I'm like good at putting band-aids on people. I like to think of myself as somewhere in between. Because you're expected to do all these things to a standard. However, with training comes additional roles and responsibilities. So during like FMDs or medical planning, going out on a trip or whatever, like there's just a bunch of different roles and responsibilities that you have to make sure that you're meeting the standards on. It becomes kind of difficult and it almost kind of elicits the Swiss Army knife effect where like, yeah, it's a good tool. You can use it for everything, but like it's not very specialized aside from like that TCCC, DFC realm if that makes any sense yeah yeah that makes sense we should cover some acronyms for like everyone listening who may not know tccc pfc fmp <laughs> so can we go over what those mean so tccc is just tactical combat casualty care it was a system that was put in place in 2005 actually by the department of the navy to stop preventable battlefield deaths within the war in iraq and afghanistan and basically just culmination of data points and survival rates from all the major wars up until world war one basically what came out of it is a systems approach with sequential protocols in terms of treating casualties on the x essentially like that point of injury on the battlefield so the massive use of tourniquets came back fluid resuscitation basically a protocol where the layman and i say the layman is in like the 0311 or the 11 bravo on the ground could take time sensitive steps in order to prolong death long enough to get that casualty to definitive care so pfc is the new it's actually not new but it's been around for a while now it's kind of coming back around prolonged field care and basically that is like 
the sequence and care protocols given to a casualty that that provider will have to sit on. And what I mean by sit on is like treat for hours, if not days, in like areas where medical evacuation to a higher echelon of care is not feasible at that time. So this kind of went away in Afghanistan where we had the golden hour or the golden 30 minutes at some point where there was like a guy got shot. TCCC is put on, and he's on a bird within 15, 20 minutes, and they've already got blood ready to put on the guy. There's really no need for a PFC because he's going to a thoracic surgeon right away. As you can see with some of the writing on the wall, I guess, uh, in terms of great power competition and near-peer adversaries, I would venture to say that if we do find ourselves engaged in a large-scale combat operation against some of these foreign malevolent actors that we see out there, I would venture to say that on the front lines, you could probably bet that that golden hour will go away, hence the DOD's shift on implementing PSC protocols and making sure people are trained up on it, because it's going to be a massive change in terms of techniques, tactics, and procedures in the next big one. FMP is just full mission profile, basically just a training exercise, where you go from soup to nuts, from like the planning phase all the way to exfiltration. The next person we're going to bring into this conversation is Chase. Chase is a former Navy SWIC and a SOCOM. What is the course like? The course, to me, felt like an extension of CQT, which is crewman qualification training, or for the team guys, SQT, SEAL qualification training, in the sense that it was more gentleman-like on the Navy side than you know going through the initial selection, where you're just a piece of crap. But there was still an aspect of, you're not part of our community yet. And that's kind of weird, because... On the Navy side, the team guys are wearing trinets and the boat guys are wearing their pin. And so most guys have already checked into a team and met their respective platoons or detachments. And so that's kind of an interesting dynamic. And you can definitely tell that there is tension that comes from this on the Navy side. So on the Army side, a lot of the guys are, you know, are going through the 18 Delta course or maybe they're in the pipeline or changing from a Bravo or something to a Delta. In the SOCOM portion, there's a lot of Rangers in the course. We had MARSOC guys in the course. There's SARC. I don't remember what that acronym means. They're corpsmen. It definitely was much more regimented for the Army in that manner than it was for the Navy. I think it is instructor-dependent, though, because we had in the Navy cadre some that were very hands-off, like, hey, man, you guys are already in the community, and some that were like, you still have to prove yourself in this course. I think that's a little bit more difficult for some to navigate than others. But for the most part, that's just part of the course. It's just something you're going to have to deal with. So outside of that, the course itself does a really good job at kind of level setting the expectations up front. They let you know how much load you're going to take and that the course is going to be very academically rigorous. And so I think a lot of that is kind of like showing up to your respective selection, whether you're in the Green Beret doing their selection or you're in Buds going through whatever. And you kind of have that nervousness at the beginning of, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? Or here we go. But the course does a very good job of maintaining the pace. I mean, it's set, but all the individual components are linked together in a very nice way, such that everything builds on itself as you go through the course. And even if you had prior medical knowledge or you're a corpsman or a medic or you're an EMT or something like this before, that might benefit you to ease some of the process through along the course. But for the most part, everyone comes in and they assume no medical knowledge. Okay. Walk me through the course structure itself. Like, What is it like from month to month? 
It was broken down. Basically, you have a very large initial section, which is handling the medical fundamentals, anatomy and physiology, pharmacology, pathology. And it's broken down by organ system, whether it's musculoskeletal or nervous system. And so they spend quite a bit of time going through that and making sure that you have the base knowledge that you need to be successful in further portions of the course. And then within this, they're going to mix in a lot of practical things, whether it be sick call, medical administration, patient interviews, and things like this. And then the testing is going to start. We took two tests, one after another, and had a practical on the same day. I think those generally fell on Fridays, and you had to score some out above like an 80%, and you only got one retest, which adds a lot of stress to the course itself. Then when you get past that first hurdle, which is like medical fundamentals, I think they call it med funds, you know, you're moving in now into sections that are more EMT, EMTB, paramedic-based kind of things like trauma A and trauma B or two different portions of the course where you're looking at kind of hitting those wickets to get certification as an EMT, which will eventually allow you to be an EMTP. So you're going through a lot of those kind of in the same manner that you would at a civilian school to hit those wickets for national registry. And once you get through that, then there's a very big shift in the course to where now you're moving into what you're going to be doing in the field, which encompasses suturing, surgical skills, innovations, different types of procedures. There's an entire surgical procedure portion, which has the suturing and stuff like this in it. Each of these with their own test gates, like for instance, in trauma A, trauma B, you're going to do the same worksheets that they have to do for the paramedic, which is innovations and all the different airways. You're going to go through it just like you would if you were at a civilian school doing it, and then you're going to move over into surgical skills. And then you're going to move into TCCC. And a lot of people coming in will have done this at their team or unit. And that's one thing. But what you're going to be doing here is much more intense. It was like three to four weeks, which really involves a lot of putting together everything you've learned, but on on your buddy. And so that's everything from IVs and some of the procedures that you've learned. Obviously, not all of them are quite invasive. You'll kind of walk through application of meds, choosing the medicines based off what you learned and medical fundamentals based off what you're seeing in your patient and really walking through that on a buddy, hand over hand, bandaging. And then that's going to carry over when you move into the combat trauma medicine portion, which is one of the final portions, which is more of the test gates where you're really applying everything you've learned in very realistic settings. And so, and then after that, Generally, you go on hospital rotations for about a month, hospital and paramedic rotations for about a month, where you're going between a hospital and performing as an EMTB, I think at that time, at a fire station. So you're getting to see the patient move all the way, in some cases, from pickup in the ambulance into the hospital and then care into the hospital, which is a really fun time. It's Everyone generally always enjoys that. It's not a very stressful situation. It's really application and a chance to really learn from other medical professionals the skills that you have learned and kind of hone those tools. And then you'll come back and there's some classroom at the end for infectious disease and things like this. And it all kind of culminates in taking the advanced tactical practitioner exam, which is about four hours, which you need to pass to actually get your license under the SOCOM Surgeon General to practice medicine in this capacity. So Jack, by the time you're done with the 18 Delta course, you've gone through all the trauma medic stuff, how to stop the bleeding, start the breathing, all of that. And then you're doing animal medicine, dentist work, all kinds of other stuff. And maybe this is a stretch, but I'm guessing that in the SF for the special forces pipeline, this is probably the toughest, if not one of the toughest specialties you could have. 
and you go through selection for Special Forces, SFAS, which is hard enough on its own, and then you have to go through the 18 Delta course, and a lot of guys don't make it, or some amount of them don't make it, because it's incredibly difficult. So the amount of stuff that you're learning in this amount of time is kind of insane. What is it like to get through that? What's the day look like, or what does this course look like? So a little bit about myself to kind of make this a little bit more sensible is I went to a private university before my tenure in the Army. I got a degree in biology, pre-med. I had been exposed to it. I had my EMT before, so I had been exposed to some of the material coming in. Even just going into it, you're drinking from a fire hose from day one. It's funny, I like to compare the Saucon Pipeline, I guess, or the 18 Delta Pipeline to like a CrossFit workout where like selection and some of the ancillary courses that go into it leading up to the Saucon are kind of like the buy-in. And then the workout is Saucon, if that makes any sense. I know it's a little corny. It's interesting because you go into this course and you hear about the attrition rates and how people jokingly call it the Bravo prep course or the Ego prep course because they sometimes if you're a good dude, they'll reclass you. It is daunting. This is the first real thing I did in my life where I'm like, dude, there's a really good chance you're not going to make it through. Like, you need to go in there with the best attitude. Like, it's like when the Patriots played the Saints in 08. Like, we all knew what was going to happen, but we root for the bets, you know? But yeah, it starts at a pretty slow, digestible pace. Nothing about EMT is overly difficult. I would recommend prospective students going in if they have the time and resources to go ahead and get their EMT before they go. You run the risk of developing bad habits, but I think it's outweighed by the fact that it's not new material. So it'll be like material that you're seeing again. It'll be easier to digest it the second time around. And then one thing that really caught me by surprise was medical math. So being able to be proficient in just everyday math, because you know, that whole you know, adage of like, you think you have a calculator in your pocket for the rest of your life, and now we all have cell phones, like, got it, but when you take it away, you know, that crutch that's been leaned on, it's like land nav, the skills are perishable, so brushing up on medical math. Going through the course itself, I used to hate it when people, SFAS cadre and whatnot, would be like, this is the easiest part of the course, you just get done with it, and you're like, all right, dude, all right, got it, yeah, cool, you just want to say this is not important, but there is some truth to that, I mean... You're told what to do, and you do it. If you do it, some other things are good, and then you're good. If you don't make it, you don't make it. That's pretty cut and dry. But with Sockham, there's a little bit of subjective versus objective in terms of grading. There's always that, that cadre roulette that you get. You always make friends with the guys in the next class above you to kind of rub elbows with them and kind of figure out, like, hey, what was the hardest part? Like, you'd be stupid not to. You know, I'm not saying, like, you're G2 and looking for cheat codes or whatnot, but it'd be foolish not to learn from someone else's mistakes. You don't make the same one when you're in their shoes. You always hear the lines of like, oh, if you get this instructor, like you're done, dude, he fails everyone and, and whatnot. So one, that was one of the rumors going through. If you get like a certain instructor, you're pretty much guaranteed you're getting put out to the pasture. And I've had a couple of those instructors. It's, I'm here. It's not true. The portions that were the most difficult of the course would probably be and this isn't just for me personally, just I'm talking to colleagues and people that I went to the course with. Some people just didn't get it right off the bat, the whole medicine thing. Some people didn't want to be there. Some people were told to be there. So they really weren't putting in a lot of effort and they were removed almost immediately. But EMT and the medical math weeded out a few people. And then we were pretty much good up until anatomy and physiology that got a few people, especially with the pin test that everyone talks about. That was a pretty big block of attrition there after that test. And then I would say the trauma one module, the TPA assessment, and then the trauma three, there's basically a couple points in the course where you're, everything kind of culminates down into a testable event, and you get two tries, and a lot of people don't make it. 
almost half the class was failed when I went through. And out of that half, probably a third were MTR, never to return, pretty much kicked out, going to the 82nd and going to the NC Army. And then the other parts were either recycled or reclassed. When I was going through, if you were a high performer and you just had a bad day, it's like 50-50, you get recycled. Towards the end, there was a change in policy and leadership, and that went from like, hey, as long as you don't recycle the same block and you're a high performer, there's a good chance you might get another go at it. So I always had that in the back of my mind going through. But it was one of those things where I remember the amount of stress and fatigue were pretty high. And I just remember like every couple of weeks before a big test, like looking myself in the mirror after I just got done shaving the morning, like, all right, man, been a good run. You did well, but let's, <laughs> let's go see what happens because there's just so many dudes that were way fitter than I was, way smarter than I was, and like they were dropping like flies. I'm like, dude, why am I still here? Which brings me to another point of advice to kids going through or younger students going through is like, don't ever self-select. Don't ever be the one that tells yourself you can't do it or you're not going to make it. It doesn't matter. I don't care about statistics. I don't care about probabilities. Make them tell you that you didn't make it. Otherwise, if you have that attitude, I started getting into it a little bit. And then towards the end, I'm like, all right, I'm obviously here for a reason. Maybe I'm not as bad as I thought it was or maybe... I'm just really lucky, I don't know, but I'm not going to have that attitude. And that's kind of stuck with me since I left the course, is that don't self-select out. That's a common one with any selection course. For sure. It's so funny. It doesn't matter what branch it is, whatever selection portion it is, when that rucksack starts getting heavier, that exogenous stress starts getting so severe that it impairs your mental, your cognitive ability, that all of a sudden your family starts becoming really important, or maybe yeah. you can just go do something <laughs> else. Maybe it's not for you. You know, it's almost like it's there for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I could say the three most difficult parts of the course are just going to be like, just that initial, oh, we go, and then the two like really big tests later on. The rest of the stuff is very interesting. I have nothing but love for the schoolhouse. I know some people listening to this right now will probably think I'm insane for saying that, but you know, I've met some really good instructors there. I also met some pretty terrible ones, but for the good ones, I would say that the good ones vastly outweigh the bad ones. If you put forth the effort, whether that's on the weekends or after class, before class, like, they will help you. They want to help you. The good ones do. There's something you really want. There's a way to do it because there's plenty of people who've done it before, and it's just about finding out what works for you and making sure you're doing the right thing at the right time. Yeah, the course is interesting. It will definitely teach you a lot about yourself aside from like the vast medical knowledge you gain from it and whatnot. It definitely teaches you a lot in resiliency and planning and yeah. prioritizing things, making sure that you're doing the hard thing today and not taking it easy so you don't make tomorrow harder, if that makes any sense. They'll also have resources for additional study. Like if you're struggling with something, you can get help, right? Absolutely. Like you could go work with someone after. Okay. Absolutely. So we'd have study halls, which used to blow my mind that they would offer, you know, review sessions or study halls and like guys wouldn't do it. Like guys would just be like, oh, I got this. I would venture to say most of those dudes, maybe not that block, but later on the line, they still had that same attitude. They're no longer here. They're not graduates of soccer. Do you think that's a factor? Like they thought that they were doing like the stuff that was mandatory and they thought that was all they should do or needed to do and they just didn't cover their bases by doing extra work, by studying where they needed to? That's a good question. I don't know. Some of the guys that I've talked to, they were doing really well in the course and they, I think they probably thought like, this is below me. I don't know if it was like a malicious thing or like, oh, this is below me. I don't need to do this or if it was prioritizing other things over it. I don't know. But I know my core group of fellow students and I, we'd spend weekends and before class, if we didn't have PT that day, after class, 
we would hang out, we would make study guides, make flashcards, like all that kind of stuff on our own time. Whereas like some of the other guys are just more concerned about chasing chicks in Chapel Hill or Raleigh or Wilmington. You know what I mean? They just, they had other priorities or some guys it's really hard because some guys legitimately have like a full family and they're living off post. And they have to have their family time. I'm not talking about those guys. I'm just talking about guys that didn't really prioritize their success versus like the, I'm going to go hang out. I'm going to go do what I want versus prioritizing things that are probably going to add to my chance of success in the course. Chase, what do you think are the most common failure points in the course and how can people prepare for those? When I went through one of the biggest attrition points was definitely that first two or three months of medical fundamentals, the academic portion, because a lot of people are not prepared for the load of taking four different types of courses and being tested on three of them every week or every other week. And just the amount of knowledge that you're kind of expected to be able to regurgitate and to be able to kind of call back and not necessarily in the straight, I read this fact, they're going to ask me a question about this fact. They do a good job in the test of testing your skills of rewording questions or scenarios or giving scenarios that you really have to know what it is the knowledge base is and be confident in it in order to answer a question. Because a lot of them are, there are two right answers, but which one is more right based off of what you learn? And I think a lot of it is putting in that reference of this is what we learned. And based off of what we learned, this is the most right answer. So there is a bit of a playing a game with that. So you might automatically think like, I would never do that in the field. It doesn't matter. Like there's a right answer that they're looking for, you know. It's a lot. I mean, when you think if you've never done medicine and now you're literally going through entire textbooks of anatomy, it's definitely the equivalent of an undergraduate anatomy physiology course that you would go through if you're a pre-med student, not necessarily in medical school. For me, knowing that that was coming, I grabbed some workbooks. It would be like Khan Academy workbooks. About two or three months prior, I hadn't been introduced to this type of work at all or medicine in general. So I had no idea, which would have been fine. But I think that by doing that and kind of prepping myself a little bit just on the academic side, because the body systems are the body systems, the muscles are the muscles, the nerves are the nerves, pathways are pathways. So you're going to see all that information. So if you front load it and you're seeing it for the third or fourth time, you can at least assist yourself in that first three months to kind of take some of that pressure off. I like to be seeing things for the third or fourth time, just because I need to have that retention and the ability to apply it in thought. And I think that in the course, people that did that were definitely much less stressed in the first three months than the other guys that you could tell were really just up cramming and studying. I don't know if it's even possible. Could you give an example of one of those, what's the most right answer out of two right answers kind of question? So say you're talking about something that would manifest because a hormone or like adrenaline or something like this from your adrenal glands or whatever it may be, isn't functioning properly. So say the third piece in the chain, but there's a first piece in the chain, like the hypothalamal pituitary axis, stuff like this. That's the first piece in the chain, right? And so the answer may be directed towards you have those two options, And so depending on the context, say the person had a head injury, that would be the more right answer. Like he had possibly has damage to this area, which is causing this, which is causing this. Not that he hit his head and his adrenal gland is malfunctioning. Yes, his adrenal gland may be malfunctioning, but why is that? 
And so people will immediately link the two like, oh, epinephrine affects this or norepinephrine affects this in this way. But based off like the mechanism of injury, the adrenal gland injury or whatever it may be is not the most likely cause. There is a root cause, which is because of the head injury. So the questions may be framed in, in that kind of manner. Jack, could we back up and cover something in a little more depth? You mentioned medical math. Can you give us an example of what that is and, and how you could prepare for it or practice it? The med math, it's nothing crazy. It's just basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. There's no like quadratic formula or anything like that. There is some like dose calculations. So brush up on like dose calculations, like knowing how to divide milliliters per hour into a drop set for like an IV. It's stuff like that. It's very rudimentary and very simple, but it's something that I didn't hear about until I got the test in front of me. It was one of those things like, oh man, I hope I remember this. So Before someone gets to the course, where could you learn that? Khan Academy, I believe, has stuff. There's plenty of articles online because like whenever I need to brush up on it, I'll just legitimately go on Google and type in like dose calculation or like medical math. I don't know how hard in the paint you'd have to go. If I could go back, I wish I had like a couple of days beforehand to just kind of knock the cobwebs off. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of learning a process, right? It's not so much rote memorization of like a multiplication table or anything. It's just learning. For sure, for sure. I wonder about, are you familiar with programs like Super Memo or Anki that use based repetition for a learning model? I've used them for no. uh, languages before. They can be really useful. And they're, they're based on the idea they have built-in forgetting curves. And they're based on the idea that the best time to get a practice repetition of something is just before you're about to forget it. Like you practice it over and over and over when it's easy, then you're not really gaining any ground. And then if you wait so long that you've forgotten it, then you're just digging yourself in a hole. I don't know if there would be for medical math. There probably are. But you can get flashcards, basically. And then you study these concepts and it feeds you the flashcards based on your recall and based on when you're predicted to forget it. So it kind of optimizes the the spaced repetition curve. If I'll try to dig that up and we could put it in the show notes. Khan Academy would be a good reference. And I'd definitely be interested in checking that out. I, I love Super Memo for languages. Okay, next one, you said pin test. That's an anatomy physiology thing. Is that like where there's a little picture of a pin in a muscle and you have to say this is the tibialis or whatever? Pretty much, yeah. So there'll be anatomy in front of you and there will be a pin and there will be a space in the test like, what is this? And you start really questioning yourself I think it's like over 800 terms you're responsible for. And it's like a crapshoot because it's like 100. So 100 out of like 800. I, I could be wrong on the amount. It's mm. no different though. Like when I was in college and I took A&D, it's no different than that. It's just mm. in college, you got a bad grade, you can recover for a bit. If you get a bad grade there and it's like your average, like there's a chance you're, you're going to see the man and going right. bye-bye. So it's the amount of stress that's on you for that. And, you know, like I said, there's ample enough time to study it obviously isn't that difficult because I'm here, right? I, I made it through. Like, plenty of people make it through, but it's one of those things where if you don't put in the effort, you don't put in the time, it's just something that you're not going to do well on. Do you, have you used any of those, like, 3D anatomy apps for that? When I went through, there was very limited material out that I was aware of anyways at the time. You know, it's been almost the better part of a decade since I went through. I just used, like, the medical coloring books, as crazy mm-hmm. as it sounds, and then... Just going in and practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing, bumping heads with my friends over stuff and, and whatnot. Because it's one of those things where it's very useful to to have a test like that, go through something as stressful and whatnot. Like now my recall and stuff is, I don't know if that helped it, that, that period of stress inoculation helped my recall or not, but it's become a lot easier for anatomy and physiology ever since that block. Yeah, I bet, because you just had it hammered into you so much. 
And then the last one I want to cover this because I was just having a conversation yesterday with a friend who's going to SF selection and it seems like the army is especially prone to the rumor thing that the instructors will be personally out to get you and that there'll be like this instructor where like he said, if you get him, you're going to fail or like when I went through army jump school, there was this rumor that you're going to do 150 push-ups for the PT test and it wouldn't matter because they're going to fail you anyway. Yeah. Just sit there. yeah yep. and it wasn't true. None of that was true. Like maybe like for the jump school example, that was people who sucked at push-ups and they just yeah. legitimately failed the push-up test. And then they made up a thing that the instructor screwed them over and made them do 120 reps and they couldn't do it or whatever. The old 41 club. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a thing with the instructors? Like how much of a factor would you say that is in the Delta course? I'm not going to lie and say it's not a factor. It definitely is to an extent. However, like I said, I've had some of those gatekeepers, I guess you could say, or tap protectors. The tap protectors. The one that everyone's like, oh, he's out to get you. And, and realistically, they're not. Some of them might be a little bit more strict on your sequence and whatnot. Some of the instructors have a different way that they do medicine and they want to see it done. So if you do it a little bit differently, that might rub them the wrong way. That's kind of like what I was hinting at with like, the subjectiveness mm. to it a little bit. But bottom line, they all go off the same grading rubric and grading credentials, and there's key tasks, critical tasks that need to be met. They're either passed or failed, and then there's time standards. So you get a guy, and it's super funny because like every time you talk to someone that failed out, they always have some sob story about how they got screwed over, and then you ask them what happened, and they'll give you this sob story about how they like did X, Y, and Z on time, blah, 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 and then there's always the but. But, you yeah. know, I was over by like a minute and 30 seconds. Like, all right, so you failed. you failed the clinic. Like, it's not the instructor. It's always some sob story like that. And it's funny, my buddy had a good quote. 80% of people have a good excuse. But in the <laughs> end, the end state is still the same, right? So there are some instructors that were uh, not as friendly as others. And some other instructors that really liked to punish you in the morning in PT versus some of the others, but that whole adage of like, there's some cranky dude that's just out there to fry 18 x-rays or fry kids. It's just, I don't know. I didn't really see it when I went through. Maybe I wasn't looking for it. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong, but I didn't really see it going through. Everything that I saw when I was in the course was a fair shake at it. And some of those tests, you have two tries. Like you have a bad day one day. Everyone has bad days, right? You just can't have two in a row. <laughs> right. I would yeah. say to people that, that fear that, I would take that with a grain of salt. Maybe it's changed since I've been gone, but I would venture to say with the amount of oversight and the changes that have been going on within the pipeline, I would venture to say it's probably gotten even more professional at this point. Yeah. Again, far removed from it, so I could be <laughs> totally wrong. Just making an assumption here. The double failure thing is also, I think, important. And like basically focus on what you can control there. Like There's a standard. You have to meet it if you know you can meet the standard. It's extremely unlikely that you get the grumpy guy on a bad day with a chip on his shoulder who's going to find an excuse to fail you. Exactly. I did the the State Department, the WIPS course, like the certification to be a PSD guy. And I, I did my pistol shoot. And like, I'm good with a pistol. And the guy went up and scored my target. I don't remember the max score was, say, 80. And the guy was like, you got 42. You fail. And I had to like stand there with all the losers on the line and like... Then yeah. shoot it again. And another guy came by and like saw me standing there, looked at my target, took out his marker and was like, squeak, 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 squeak. He's like, Jesus Christ. And the guy just didn't count anything. He just like just made some X's on it and just decided that I randomly failed. And he's like, you can just do this again, right? Okay, cool. And I just shot it again. And I had like a 79 out of 80 or something. 
but like it can happen but the point was i could shoot and the guy was like just do this again and you're fine and you know i passed through the course and when you go to like a retest or if, you know if you fail you're not getting the same guy again yeah you're gonna get someone else so there's like some objectiveness like you just said we'll take any of that out and then you make it you make it you don't you don't 90 percent of the time when you don't make it there's always some sob story about you know oh man they really were out to get me they don't like me they don't like me they've been out to get me because x <laughs> y and z no dude like just didn't make it man it's not for everybody yeah some instructors do have a, a knack for making every single student think that that they personally have it out for them but it, it's just part of the game it's just part of the stress of the that game. they have to impose so that they know that you can handle that stress for sure chase i'd like to get your opinion on this as well your take on the instructors there is a uniformed army cadre and a uniformed navy cadre kind of the way it works is they handle like the logistics and like just kind of running the show like a dean you know they actually have a dean most of the instructors you're going to see are civilians and these guys are prior 18 Deltas, prior team guys, prior whatever it may be, paramedics, physicians assistants that were service members. And they're teaching the various courses. And they have very differing personalities. So you do have the overarching like, hey, you know, I've got the uniform guys with rank, but the civilian guys hold just as much weight. And they have everything from someone who's, hey, man, you know, if this works out, you know, and you get out, you should come do this and I can write your recommendation. You know, maybe you'd like to do, be a flight paramedic, you know, be a paramedic or whatever to everything to that, to you're the stupidest person on the planet and you're a student. I'll give you an example. We had a guy and we were talking about EKGs, receipts, like electrocardiograms, right? Learning rhythms, heart rhythms and stuff like this. And there's a difference between a 12 lead and a three lead. So one of the questions was asked to the student, would you rather have a 12 lead or a three lead? The student didn't know how to really answer the question. And so he was like, let me ask this in a more monkey way. He's like, would you rather stand watch on a building with 12 windows so you could see 360 degrees or a building with three windows and you had to kind of walk around and and peer through the windows? Now, which would you choose to use in the field? Well, the three lead, because that means it's more protection for me. And the instructor immediately said, I have a feeling that you're probably not going to be a medic. (laughs) This particular instructor I hear is still there. I mean, I really enjoyed him. But if you did say something off, you were going to get berated. So then you have other instructors that really are there to like want you to learn. But you have to remember they're mostly prior military. So if you're coming from the army, just go ahead and act like you're about to get yelled at. I mean, if you're coming from the Navy, just try not to call them by first names or you'll get yelled at. <laughs> That's good advice. Jack, how did you manage some of the scenarios in this course that are specifically designed to be stressful and kind of see if you're prone to panicking while carrying out these complicated medical procedures? I'll tell you like some of the, the stress techniques used for like stress inoculation to make sure you can do it under fire and whatnot when that situation arises and I'll tell you for me that's it's never like the amount of fake machine gun fire or hoot and hollering <laughs> or like moulage and the patient screaming or like Artie Sims going off it was always as soon as I heard that red stopwatch click and I see that red grease pen moving while I'm doing stuff that was enough stress inoculation for yeah. me it's one of those things like <laughs> oh man I'm fighting the clock and the sequence right now like I don't know how this is going to go but we're going to try what would you do in your head in those moments, like, because you could probably get really fixated on that red pen move in 
how did you focus on what you needed to do rather than getting distracted by the stress of the situation? I would do a lot of things subconsciously. One of the things was I would understand, okay, I'm here on my own volition. This is a test. I need to meet the right metrics on the test. I know how to do it. I've trained to do this. So we're just going to do everything we've been doing before because this worked out. We're not going to do anything crazy. We're not going to go faster. We're not going to go slower. Parts of the test are broken up into blocks. So like that first block, I'm just like, nothing else matters in this world right now except assessing this patient, implementing the right interventions and the right amount of time, and then moving the patient and causing no further harm to that patient. That's all that matters. I remember in clinics and during tests and whatnot, not being tunnel vision because I could see what was going on the periphery and like seeing other students next to me ending because they had failed and whatnot and just being like, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. The only thing that matters is what's in front of you right now. It's like that 25 meter, 50 meter, 100 meter target. That 25 meter target, that's all that matters. It's the only thing that matters in the world is that 25 meter target right now. You don't need to worry about that dude with an RPG 300 meters <laughs> out this front at you. You need to worry about the dude with the bayonet that's going to stick you in the stomach unless you shoot him from 25 meters right. away, right? Yeah. That's pretty much how I would do it. It was almost like, not to sound corny, but like, uh, how do you eat an elephant analogy? It's just one bite at a time. Like, you have this daunting task ahead of you, and you know there's all these pitfalls, and there's all these processes that you have to do in the right amount of time, and any negligence or mistakes or technique malfunctions or, you know, bad techniques or anything like that is going to no-go you. You just have to take it in a very sequential step-by-step-by-step process. And then towards the end, when everything is said and done, you're just like, all right, dude, I just blacked out. Like, what just happened? The blinders kind of come off a little bit. It's interesting in the beginning, it's like very much panic medicine right away. You're trying to fight that clock. You're treating the clock versus treating the patient. And that's where people start screwing up. They start making mistakes. They start missing wounds. They start missing interventions because they're so worried about the time. And one of the things that was told to me before test day was just like, hey, you've got this. You've been doing it in practice. You're under time. You haven't done anything egregious yet. Don't start today. Treat the patient, not the clock, not the sequence. Treat the patient. That actually makes a lot of sense. I'm just going to treat this patient as if I would treat him in real life. Yeah, yeah. To refer listeners to some resources, the two things you're describing are segmenting and compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is the one where like you see all this stuff going on, all of it's stressful, all of it might matter, like the guy with the RPG 300 yards away, but you focus on the one thing that is most important in that moment. You deal with that thing before you move on. And then segmenting is chopping things down and doing the next right thing and the next right thing and not looking too far ahead of the stuff you can't control right now. Right. In the show notes, I'll link to some articles on those mental skills because it sounds like those are going to come up a lot and you should be able to implement that or use those mental models. If you don't employ yourself to use those types of mental models, at least for me anyway, your mental bandwidth will be just so stretched in, like you'll have just an implosion. Just overwhelm yourself. You can see dudes, like especially with some of like the the bad wound sets where you like you show up on the patient like, oh my god, okay, I know what I have to do. This is going to take so much time. I don't know if I'm going to have enough time. It's just like, stop thinking about it. Use what you've been trained on. You have your mark sequence for a reason. You go down the sequence. You treat the patient as if you treat them in real life. You don't worry about all this other stuff going on. You start getting really good at that, and then they start later on, especially like during FMPs and stuff, they start throwing like mass cells at you with like more than one patient. So now you're like, mm. man, I was just starting to get this down, and now I have more than one. <laughs> you know, so it's like then you have to take it a step further, a step further. So yeah, so you're always under stress. Basically, you're always, always. Just, just keeping up. And if somebody tells you they're not under stress, even if it's during an FMP, they're either lying or they don't care about their job. Yeah. Yeah, neither one's good. Yeah. 
And what about you, Chase? I'd like to touch on this from your perspective as well, because it's a big part of the course and, and it's a big cause of some of the attrition that happens. How did you manage stress or how did you manage to successfully execute all of these skills in these simulated combat scenarios that are designed to be deliberately terrible? So in the course, the stress kind of comes differently as you progress through the course. So starting again at the beginning, you know, the stress is I've got to make the grade. I have to retain the knowledge. There are some hands-on practicals in the very beginning. I'll leave those for the attendees to determine you know, what they think about those, but they're not really that rigorous. It's just mostly the testing, right? So that the stress is completely self-imposed. They give out information. They expect you to be able to learn the information and then tell them about it. That's the equivalent of it, right? So the stress is simply imposed on the person, which is generally brought on by not knowing how to study, which they don't teach there, just sitting there and aimlessly reading through chapters, thinking that they're retaining the knowledge and then failing a test. So it's all self-imposed and they expect you to derive your own type of study skills, right? So we've kind of talked about that already. But as you progress through the course, now things are going to become procedure-based where there are sequence sheets like sequences or checklists or procedures that you have to follow in a very specific order. And whether that may be airway management, starting an IV, spiking the bag, cleaning the site. And they're watching each step of this with scrutiny. And everything is on a clock. You have to have this IV started in three minutes, or you have to have this procedure done in two minutes or less. And so that's what you're expected to do because all of those requirements are going to come up later. So they, at that point, none of the procedures are especially hard. You're not doing intense surgery. And so putting someone on a clock does some very interesting things to someone who could breeze through this if they didn't know their time and half the time that's allotted. And then you tell them they're on a clock and you'll watch them fumble. They let the time and requirement do the stress itself. Now, there are instructors there that really like to call you out while you're doing it. If they see you going really smooth and you're like, man, this guy is just crushing it. They might throw a curveball like, oh man, your patient just coded. Stop the clock. Walk me through what you're going to do. And this is extra. It's not going to come against you. If you've passed that point to where you've learned that knowledge and they see an opportunity of where to insert that on the fly, it's probably going to get inserted, right? And it's not going to be counted against you. But what it does is it does rattle you. Because now you're having to shift gears in your thought process. So now you're getting rattled and you kind of have to come back to your center and hone that and understand what you're doing. So to mitigate that, you just have to understand that a lot of medical procedures are just that. They're just a procedure, which is an order of operations. Now, if you have the base knowledge and you've done well enough in the beginning of the course and you've studied the order of operations and your gear is prepped, you have no reason to stress you're going to naturally stress anyway, right? So that's just the matter of the beast because you might drop something, you might, you know, but that is as prepared as you can be. And that is all you can do to minimize the stress because you can't just not care, right? That's the other way to minimize the stress. You just don't care, but that's not going to get you anywhere, you know, especially in medicine, the preparedness beforehand, because like I said, it's going to become to where everything is procedure-based and you're going to have a sheet with the list of procedures of the order that this needs to be done for specific scenarios, and you almost have to be able to recite that thing forward and backwards or by piecewise. Like, I know that this is coming after this. 
or that's like three steps before this because I've got to do this, this. And eventually it's not just regurgitating and memorizing. It's because it actually makes sense physically that that's how this should play out in your head when you're doing a procedure. Like you understand the physiology and the effects of what that procedure is, right? So some people had a hard time with this at first because like, I just got to remember this procedure sheet and go through the motions. You can take it that way. But this course is also geared such that you get out of it what you put into it. Like you can just pass and you can make it. Or you can really understand what you're doing for the sake of your team and your teammates in a situation that you might find yourself in that you never thought you would. And at that point, regardless, you carry that credential and they are going to look to you to save their life and to be the best battlefield medic. Now, if you decide that this medic is blah, blah, blah to you or whatever, you're probably going to have some hard things to live with. So when it comes to these procedures, you live and die by the procedure. And so being prepared on those aspects is the quickest way to relieve stress. Now, if you find yourself like you can't remember the procedures, you're probably going to be so stressed. I watch kids vomit. That's how stressed out they were because they, <laughs> yeah, we had a kid vomit because he was that nervous because he wasn't prepared and he knew he wasn't. He couldn't remember the procedures. And when it came time to be on the clock, he didn't know them. Well, he, he probably knew them off the clock, but the stress of having a clock attached to it, he didn't, he couldn't recall them. Turns his brain off. Yeah. What skills or habits did you pick up during the course that made your life easier? I think that was my first introduction to really formal education. High school doesn't really count because it's kind of like babysitting, unless you're one of those people that, you know, was like, oh, I'm going to do great on my ACTs and go to Harvard, which was not me. So, you know, the study habits were big because when I realized what the initial course load was, even though I had prepped, I had to really figure out how to develop a proper way to attack the material that didn't just have me sitting there reading the chapter 30 times over until one in the morning. And then remembering I had three other subjects that I had to kind of touch on at some point, or at least two other subjects. It's like, oh, well, I read the chapter. It doesn't mean you understand the material. So learning to take cues from the instructors and seeing what they're harping on, which points they're really talking about. And then for us, what we started doing was a simple thing is flashcards, because there's a lot of memorization. And so flashcards, you're going to have to use them. Unless you have a photographic memory, you're going to use flashcards. Just go ahead and get over it. Like I said, I think the test, you have to score above an 80. Maybe it's a 75. But if you say you have 25 questions on a test, can't miss that many. More like four or five, and then you're already six, and then you're already down there, and you're done. And so just kind of getting into that rhythm of being able to look at the material. You know, read the chapter, of course, to get the gloss over. And then going back and hitting those highlight points and learning to derive questions or make flashcards to really hone in those key points, but not necessarily verbatim as they came out of a chapter of a book, you know, really dig into it and understand it. Everyone has to do that in their own way. So when I say developing good study habits, it's a non-general approach. You know, it's a very non-linear process, I think for most people. And so, but finding something that works and sticking with it is very important. And for me, this was also my first experience with time management. So time management is huge because the days are running from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. and you're in a classroom. And if you take a winter course, you're going in before dark and you're coming out after dark. And you're in a classroom with no windows most of the time. And you're just in there going. So learning to take good notes during class helps you in the study prep afterwards instead of just sitting there drooling on the table. Because this is a course where you can't do that, right? Because all it takes is one fail and then one retest fail and you're going to get rolled or dropped, most likely dropped. So you really kind of have to go ahead and just prepare for the next six months to a year, depending on which course you go through, that either A, this is going to be your life 
and this is what you're going to do, or B, you're going to get in a routine and you're going to figure out a routine early that works for you such that you can kind of maintain things outside of the course. We had guys that were building a car on the weekends, guys that played the guitar. I tried to start learning to play the guitar while I was there just for something that is disjointed from the course that you can kind of deep a mental break. You have to have it because if not, I mean, you'll just stress yourself out and no one does better in those situations. And I could say that people in college do it all the time. And they're like, oh, well, this guy made it through med school. I assure you the things that they're doing like in college and med school, you're not doing that, then having to go to PT, then putting gear on and running scenarios. So you need that step away. I personally think so. I had to have it, you know, and I made it a point to every Friday night, I would go to a movie by myself of some form or something. You know, I would go and do something. It wasn't until much later in the course that we're like, hey, let's go have a beer. Definitely not in the first three months. Just go ahead and get ready for that because you're only going to set yourself up for failure. And not only that, going through the course, they do pay attention to where people are ranked on their grades. And that becomes something that's kind of a running joke with the instructors just because they know where you sit in the class and they will definitely make sure that you're aware of that as you get moving, especially if they see you kind of taking a lackadaisical attitude. And that's just going to add stress. It's going to bring embarrassment. You know, it's just part of the military going through one of these courses. It's definitely not politically correct in any manner. Chase, you mentioned earlier the importance of prepping your gear and that helped you a lot in the course. Can you tell us more about that? Once you start the hands-on practicals, everything is on the clock. Everything has a standard. Assisting yourself to achieve that standard, cutting a second or two off here or there adds up when you're doing 30 things. And that's kind of the way it works. And so if part of the course, you, you know, you're running around with med gear. It's a medical course. You're going to have gear, which is bandages and <laughs> laryngoscopes and IVs and IV bags. And, and so setting that gear up for success is like, oh, I have my IV bag and I have my little dressing that I'm going to lay out with my tubing and my, my needle. And you're not going to store those in five different places in your bag. Oh, like, oh, I got this little pouch. I'm going to put all my needles in there. No, <laughs> you know, because then when you have to use it, you're going to have to get in there and then dig this out and dig that out. You know, so one of the things we did was we made little rolls. You know, we took everything we would need to start an IV and we rolled it up in the little surgical mat, like the little thing that you would put down to like soak up pee. It looks like a dog pad, like a puppy pad. And you use those a lot to catch the blood if they, if you miss. So we would roll those up and use the tourniquet and tie it around it kind of like a little present. And we would put those that way in our bag. So if you had to start an IV, you pop that tourniquet and then everything you need is right there. And we were prepping the fold corners where you would tear it open. We would put like extra tape on those. So they're like dog ears. So you weren't sitting there fighting, trying to like get your nails in between the plastic right. and the paper. We would make bigger ears on it so you could just rip it open. It's understanding with your gear of the order that you're probably going to go through your gear, right? Like you don't want to have to, let me move my IV bags out of the way to get to my bandages because very rarely are you ever going to start an IV before, or if ever an IV before you stop the bleeding. <laughs> and so and so you would see this because we got to observe other people's runs and you would definitely see situations where guys' bags was just an absolute rat's nest. <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous and they would fail on time trying to go to do all these procedures and it just, it was crushing them. And it really was for not having their gear prepped and being prepared. And because that kind of falls into practicing, you know, when you start learning these procedures and doing these things, it's having your bag exactly how you're going to have it when you do it placing the zippers on the bag, you know, on a certain side that you know that's where they're going to be instead of like, oh man, I zipped it the wrong way and where are my zippers? Because 
it all saves time. And that's the name of the game of the course is because that's one of the things that, that they use as a stress is the time constraint. Jack, referring back to the, the concepts of compartmentalization and segmenting, what is an entire day like in terms of the stressors that you're going to face and all of the different things that you're going to have to manage and balance? Because I imagine you have to stay in, in shape. You have to PT a lot. You, you may have PT tests that you have to pass. And occasionally you have life in general in some way, especially for people who have families, kids, things like that. What are all of the things that you have to balance on top of the schoolwork itself? And how did you manage that? Oh my that? God, everything. I don't even know where to start. I mean, diet, we'll start with diet, nutrition, and, and exercise. So unless it's changed, the barracks at Sockham are like college dormitories with some Spartan accessories. You're not allowed to have like any cookware or anything in there. You have a microwave and that's it. So like the diet portion alone for me was a huge, huge change coming from like being able to have the autonomy to be the master of what I eat and whatnot to like really being limited to like what can I microwave because like you can go to the defect but you don't have enough time to go to the good defect where it has like healthier foods so you're kind of left alone and like for lunch you only have like usually an hour if that sometimes you work through lunch so you have to be really diligent on planning now there's like there's all these like meal prep companies and stuff that I think would probably make it easier like clean eats or like some of these mail order ones but for me you know I'd have to go to the grill that was in like the common like the courtyard and like just grill a ton of chicken over you know the weekend and then have like vegetables because you you have a fridge too so like you have like vegetables and whatnot it's difficult though especially if you don't have a background in diet nutrition and then the staying in shape portion you have to focus on maintenance for the most part there are some blocks because each block is different and is its own different monster in terms of its physical and time requirements there are some blocks where like pt is very hard to do and I know people listening to this might be like, oh, if you don't have time to PT, you're just not making the time. But it has nothing to do with, like, not having the time. Like, yeah, sure, I could cut into my sleeping hours to go run a five-miler or go, like, do a CrossFit workout. But at this point, like, you're stepping over dollars to pick up nickels. Yeah. <laughs> you're there at five in the morning, and then after class, you're studying or practicing until eight, nine o'clock at night. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You have one thing that you need to pass. Can you get away with three weeks of, like, maintaining your physical fitness rather than going in and breaking yourself off every day at the gym? <laughs> That's pretty much what I did. I was successful with it. There is some really good PT at the school, some not-so-good PT as well. But one thing that I liked about it is it was kind of periodized a little bit. Like, there was one block where all we did was run. So run at, like, calisthenics, so run at, like, 25, 30 miles a week, sometimes 40. And then for that month, and then the next month, we were just rock. And, like, we would rock, like, twice a week anywhere between 30% of your body weight all the way up to 80% of your body weight. Super slow in formation, just walking. Just zone two, grunt work. I like that. The Trauma 3 PT was the best because, like, they made it a competition every morning. And, like, it would turn out to be some kind of, like, high-intensity interval workout with, like, some kind of sprint or run. And then have you broken down into teams. After about 30 minutes of getting your bag smoked, they'd be like, okay, Next team around that finishes first, you guys get to go shower and eat early. And you're like, okay, so it's like incentivized. And it's like, to be on the winning end of that, that was good. The workouts were good, too. I really liked the instructors as well. And Chase, what about you? How difficult was it to manage things like staying in shape, studying in your off time, the school itself, and then the recovery or balance factor, like trying to slot some time out just to disconnect and mentally recover or refresh yourself? When I left, I was a not good 10 or 12 pounds heavier, mostly because 
energy drinks like Monster. This is like 2008, 2009 timeframe, right? So those green Monster energy drinks were like, grab one or grab five. I mean, we had cases of them in our house. I live with two other team guys and it's not good. It's not healthy. And so in the beginning, I didn't know how to manage the time and it caught me off guard a couple of times on tests where I didn't score as good as I wanted to. And I was like, oh man, I shouldn't have gone to the gym. But that's not really the case. You know, the case was that I didn't have the study habits. So really the first thing you have to do is, is develop that study habit of what is working for you. And then, because you're going to have PT, because they have muster in the morning where you're standing out there in formation. The Navy guys are in their own formation. The Army guys, the Rangers are in their own formation. And you're going to PT, which generally involves running. Later in the course, you'll get the chance. I think for us, the Navy guys got to go to the gym if we wanted to and lift weights. You know, that's what you did at the time, just a bunch of curls. It took probably a month and a half before I settled into, this is how I study for tests. This is how I block my day off once I go home. And then I would definitely have the night before the exam, I would study a little bit later, or I would go through the flashcards one more time, or I would run a procedure on the ground one more time. But then I made it a point on Saturdays that I wasn't doing it. Like I'm going to the gym and then I'm going to go eat lunch somewhere out in town. And then I'm going to come home and relax and do something mindless, whether that's sit outside or, you know, whatever I wanted to do. And, And Sunday, I would not start prepping until Sunday afternoon. So I would take Sunday morning and Saturday, and I just made it a point after the first two months that those are my days. Because the facilities are open on the weekends for you to come in because there are some anatomy exams that you have to use things that are on site. And so you can come in and practice on the exact thing that you're going to actually test on. And so during those situations, yes, that's situationally dependent. But for me, it was I had to start exercising because I could feel my body physiologically being different. I could feel my stress levels changing quicker. Those typical kind of physical cues I could start to see. So I was like, I've got to get back into what I'm doing. So agitation kind of started to set in because you're in this building all day. You don't know if you know the right stuff and it just really compounds. And that's part of the course. So I think overall, they do a really good job of kind of forcing you into that. You can muscle through the course like that or grunt through the course if you want. But you really do need to carve that time out at least two days a week because you're going to have PT in the mornings with them. Did you ever do any like study groups or anything on the weekends or did you always block it out? No. So during the first two and a half months, we did like an every other weekend. If we had something in the lab there that we had to do, they left the lab open and that would be for like three hours. Were there people who took that too far where they had so much stuff going on with extracurriculars? that they couldn't get what they needed to done in the course. Is there a balance there where like you'd still need to make sure you're hitting some check marks or hitting some targets while taking care of yourself? How did you see that playing out? So it was really interesting. The guys with families did generally did really well. And I think it's because the families were aware of the lifestyle already. They're in the course. A lot of them were rangers with multiple deployments. So the families, I think, were used to dad's got to do this. On the Navy side, you got a lot of guys coming out of buds, some of them freshly married or have fiancés or have young girlfriends that are out there. They didn't do as well. And I think a lot of that is because of the families aren't as stable necessarily. And so there is a lot of that external kind of pressure going on. Maybe you have drama in the house or whatever this may be. And that definitely, you could see that for sure, because then your mindset's just not in the right place. Guys going out and drinking a lot during the week. You could definitely see it 
and then it's going to reflect on the test. And so there is a balance. And for me, it was in moderation. As the course went on, it's getting more difficult. You're not aware that it's getting more difficult, but it is getting more difficult. You're just in the groove of it now because you have a base knowledge to be able to go and apply things. And it shifts from being more academic to more application, which generally guys in the soft community are much better at is just doing it. So you can get away with more extracurricular stuff as you go through the course, which is kind of counterintuitive (laughs) because it's actually more critical that you're making wickets along the way. Guys that that struck that balance, um, even with families, like the guys I know that had families and children, the weekends were theirs. And they might come into a study group for an hour and they check out because what they really did is they made use of that time during the week. So maybe they stayed late on a Friday or maybe they stayed late on a Thursday instead of having to come in on the weekend. They're like, hey, I'm going to put the time in now and hone it in now and then just rest my brain for the weekend and relax before Monday starts. And so I think a lot of people really struggled finding that balance. Like I said, I think our course attrition was almost half. And the majority of that was in the first three months of the course. And what about you, Jack? How did you manage work-life balance? The work-life study balance is, is insane. It really taught me a lot because I, I thought I had a pretty solid ability to time manage and, and backwards plan, but that really solidified it. I mean, just coming from my college days where I had to study and, you know, I had to have a social life and whatnot, like social life at Bragg when you're an SF student is pretty much zip to none. So that made it a little bit easier. And then obviously living in the barracks was conducive to that because it's a five-minute walk. There's no traffic and whatnot. Just maximize my time. But basically, I mean, weekends were spent studying for the most part, unless every once in a while we would blow some steam off, go down to the beach, or um, go somewhere else and see North Carolina for the weekend, just kind of shake it off. Like, maybe after a big test or, like, before a new block started where we weren't really responsible for anything in terms of study-wise, that was, like, the ability to, like, kind of go off and, like, shake it off a little bit. But being able to time manage was one of those things that was very conducive to success there. Average day, it's hard to put an average day in there because it's so different depending on whatever block you you can expect to be there at like 6 30 for pt and then you know an hour for breakfast shower get ready didactic or hands-on portions for the rest of the day usually launches an hour and then depending on what cycle you're at practice afterwards study afterwards it's very academically intensive definitely very hands-on towards the end when you're kind of putting everything into form from your didactic learning to like practical application and then to test if it makes any sense do you have weekends kind of off or is it? Yes. Usually you have weekends off unless there's some, I can't even remember if we had the work through the weekend. It's one of those things where, yeah, you have the weekends off. You can have the weekends off, but like there's stuff going on most of the weekends in terms of study groups yeah. or, you know, practice. And it's one of those things where it's like most of the guys would come in on Saturday, depending on what block we were in, Saturday and then maybe take Sunday off. But weekends, they, they leave you alone on weekends for the most part, especially four days, unless there's like some kind of test or, or anything like that, that maybe the four day kind of takes a backseat. All right, Chase, what final advice would you have for prospective 18 Delta or Sockham students? Be prepared. Be ready to define your own study habits that work for you and stick to them. Find a plan for your week and take it from day to week, just like any other selection course, day at a time or class at a time in this manner, practical at a time, day at a time, week at a time, test by test, because you're going to live and die in this course by the test day. So what is that next test I got coming? That's what I'm shooting for. I'm not worried about what those guys in CTM or on rotations are doing right now. Like I'm worried about this next test. 
you know, and there will be guys that cruise through this course regardless. And they're like, oh, I just kind of did whatever. But that's the exception, not the rule. You know, a lot of the times you're going to struggle. So just concentrate on the next test. Just like in selection. Hey, I got a time run today. Concentrate on that time run. That's the thing here is you don't have any of that. When you get there, you do have to pass the airborne PT test. Outside of that, it's that next test, that next test gate. That's what I got to get to. And if you take it in that manner, the course is just, it's smaller chunks than any other selection course. And how about you, Jack? Final advice. Any advice I'd have for prospective students that want to become an 18 Delta or an attend Sogdom would be some advice I would have given to myself almost 10 years ago. I would say the first and foremost is be in phenomenal shape going in. It's one of those things, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So all those PT tests and 12-milers, 5-milers and all that stuff that come up, if you're ready, you're good. You don't have to be the best at it, but like be in the best shape that you could possibly be in going into it because it's going to be a slope where it's going into a maintenance phase as your studies and hands-on kind of take precedence over your life. If possible before, even I'm not saying you have to have a college education. It's not what I'm saying at all, but if it's possible, go to your community college or anywhere online, even to take anatomy and physiology class or like a medical terminology class. Like I said before, brush up on simple math, if possible, med math, dose calculations, some of the utilizing some of the, the models and, and apps that you were talking about before, Craig. Uh, if it's feasible, both you know monetarily and time-wise beforehand, go ahead and get your EMT and your paramedic beforehand. You'll go through it again, and you're not going to get out of it when you go through the course. You're going to have to take all the tests and everything again. But I would venture to say, I know it helped me. It's not going to be the first time you see this material. And because it's a nationally registered EMT, nationally registered paramedic, it's the same, the same rating scale, the same kind of material. So take that for what it's worth. Be proficient in time management. So whatever you have to do, if you have to get apps, if you have to have like a an analog notebook to kind of schedule and you have to be your own personal secretary if you want to do this right and be able to be good at time management and backwards planning. Treat the course like a deployment. This was something that somebody told me and I kind of rolled my eyes at it at first, but in retrospect, it actually makes a lot of sense. The more you can minimize your distractions, the more mental bandwidth and time you're going to have to put forth to your potential success there. And now, you know, in retrospect, it actually makes a lot of sense. I really wish there's some things I did differently. I'm really glad I did the things that I did, but I would definitely take that and unpack that a little bit and treat the course like it's a deployment. I mean, it's eight months, nine months with whole times or, or holidays. It's not that far, but more so for, for people with families, I could see that being a little bit more difficult. And then lastly, like I said before, don't self-select. Don't select yourself out. Terrible mindset to have. Make them tell you you're not what they're looking for. You don't get to tell yourself that. If you want to go do this, you have every right to go try out for it. If you can cut the mustard, that's great. But don't be the one in your head that says, I don't think this is for me. Because if that's the case, why'd you show up? Yeah, yeah. In the civilian world, people talk a lot about imposter syndrome, where whatever they're doing, they feel like they don't belong there and they're going to be found out. I guess that's kind of the same thing, where people just have the assumption that they shouldn't be there. And they choose that on their own and then opt themselves out. It's unfortunate, too, because you could lose potentially like a really good medic that could save someone's life later on down the line. And he or she had a bad day and was like, oh, I feel bad about myself. Uh, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't be here. You know, it's just like yeah. those things like, man, all right, I guess I'll tell you, there's a reason why they do the things they do in terms of their assessment and selection. Because, you know, it's like another corny saying that goes on. It's like selection is continuous. It's ongoing. Yeah. And there is some truth to that because you see it all down the lines terms of like people being assessed and then people assessing themselves yeah cool well this is great thanks a lot for for being here and yeah. anytime i'm super happy to be here i'm very very humbled by being able to give back in any way that i can i wish i had a podcast like this 
11 years ago when I was trying to go through. So anything that I can do to help or offer any type of advice whatsoever, it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks, man. And Chase, I know you had to bail a second ago so you could get to work, but if you end up listening to this once it's done, uh, I really want to thank you for your time and the advice that you've offered us on this call too. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a review and share it with somebody that you think would appreciate it. You can also subscribe to our podcast so that you can catch future episodes. A big theme on this podcast was the importance of developing good time management skills and study habits. And you may have noticed that nobody really teaches that in these pipelines. It's sort of a sink or swim thing. You figure it out or you fail. So one of our next episodes will be an interview with a woman who has a PhD in the science of behavior change. And she's going to cover in detail how good time management and study skills work and how to put them into practice for yourself. If you're going to a difficult course like 18 Delta or Sockham, it's well worth the time to get that stuff dialed in before you show up. And as you would probably imagine, it's also pretty useful to have that stuff figured out before you head to selection because the instructor cadre strongly prefers it if you can learn stuff quickly and show up on time for things. Until then, you can also go to buildingtheelite.com where you can learn more about training for special operations, download a sample chapter of our book, access free selection training guides, and use our assessment profile tool in order to see how your physiological profile compares to what's needed to succeed in special operations selection.